Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. There's an energy, and I, I really am not being, like, even jokey about it. Like, there's such an energy there. There, ha there has to be. Like, you can't operate in that space and not feel the century-plus of people who came through there. And it's just amazing. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. There are some restaurants where skipping dessert is just not an option. And if you're in New York City, Gage & Tallner is at the top of that list. Pastry chef Caroline Schiff has created an all-star lineup of sweets that nod to the Chop House's historic past. It dates back to the late 1800s, while feeling totally fresh. On today's episode, she shares about her pastry philosophy, her take on the most iconic desserts in the city, and more. Caroline is a true pastry wizard, and I hope you'll enjoy. Caroline, thanks for coming on the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you in front of me with your iconic hair in person <laughs> and everything else. I think it's going to be really fun. I am so excited to be here. And I was saying that it's so nice to do a podcast not over Zoom. Yeah, we are in we are in real life, which means that I can make direct eye contact as I, I ask you to make me cheesecake every day for the rest of my life. I can I can make that happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should. I mean, if we had like scheduled this later in the day, I would have gone to work first and brought you dessert. We should have thought of that. Mm, okay, and this is a message to my past self if I can somehow yeah. tap in. Is but to just reschedule. You, you'll just come visit. Come yeah, visit the restaurant. Yeah. Anytime. I would love to come by again, and I'd love to start out with asking you a little bit about your thoughts on historical desserts. Um, for people that aren't familiar, Caroline is the pastry chef at Gage and Tallner, which to me is one of the most like iconic historic restaurants in New York, certainly in Brooklyn. And um, I'm sure that you did a lot of like research about historical desserts that I'd love to get into. But to start, I'm curious, like, if you could tell me about like an underrated historical dessert that you think we should be trying to bring back in the same way that um, Baked Alaska has made a revival. Yeah, definitely. And it's been so cool to see the revival of the Baked Alaska, which is a Victorian era dessert. Like it just like seeing it pop up on menus and stuff like that. I just I love it. It's so fun. Um, but the other one that I've been kind of playing around with lately and um, I did a little um, video that's not not out yet, but, you know, it's coming soon. Um about Nestle Road Pie. Have you heard of this? No, but I'm so intrigued. So I went down the Nestle Road rabbit hole because I got like really, really into this. So it's another like 19th century um, dessert that originated in Germany. Um, and it was, there was a guy named Carl Nesselrod and he mm. was like, he was like a diplomat to, um, I believe the Russian empire. And he was really well known for entertaining his, you know, friends and enemies and frenemies with like these opulent dessert spreads and kind of like trying to win friends and influence people with his desserts, mm. which like I can totally relate to because that's how I make friends. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they were these like um, frozen custards with like cherries and chestnuts and all of these like glacéed fruits and things like that. And then... Um, it was sort of reinvented in New York in the 30s as a pie. So like classic pie crust and then a custard that's like studded with like, you know, all of these preserved fruits and nuts and there's like a chestnut cream. Um, and so I kind of I, I, I made one recently um, and it has such a great story and I love that it's already gone through like all of these iterations and and reinventions and so I'm just like let's let's bring it back. What was the yeah. eating experience of it like? Is it creamy the whole way through? 
It's super creamy, but it has texture uh-huh. and it's really nutty. And, um, you know, the, the custard is the creamy element. And then like I put, um, you know, traditionally it had like, um, maraschino cherries in it. So I used some Luxardo cherries in there and, um, chestnuts and all of that kind of stuff. It's really, uh, there's something very it's it's a wintry dessert actually in my in my mind it like evokes the holidays and that kind of thing but chestnuts roasting on the open fire exactly yeah. <laughs> it's funny chestnuts to me in general feel like kind of a dated a dated nut you know I feel like you don't really eat them well, that often well that's because of the chestnut blight oh oh no oh. <laughs> the blight <laughs> tell me more <laughs> tell me everything so this was in. Um, I believe the early 20th century, there was a um, disease that like, and this was part of the, I learned about this when I went down the Nestle Road rabbit hole of (laughs) Wikipedia and the internet. Um, There was like a disease that kind of destroyed like all of the chestnut trees in North America. So all these chestnut trees basically were diseased and died off. So chestnuts kind of became sort of, you know, out of fashion, like you couldn't get them. Mm-hmm. So they they never really like made a comeback in the United States. So even to this day, most of the chestnuts you get are imported. Yeah, that's so interesting. That kind of reminds me of the situation with currants in America. Mm. Are you familiar with this? No, tell me more. I was writing about currant cassis, which is a really delicious cassis. It's, have you had that? I, I have it at home. It's yeah. delish. I, actually, I think it would be really good in, in baking. I don't know if you've oh, done anything with totally. it. Totally. Like yeah. a cassis ice cream, something. Absolutely. So cassis historically is made from fermenting black currants, mm-hmm. I believe. And for a long time, currants were illegal in the United States. Oh, I learned about this when I was writing about uh, this cassis in particular, and it was basically because the the cassis plants, I guess the current plants, were being affected by this one um, mite, I think, or some kind of pest that also was targeting oh. the white oaks in the United States. And so oh. the like lumber, I don't know, lobbyists, I guess, of the era got Congress to ban currants because they thought that they were bringing over this mite that was going to be damaging to the lumber industry. And then it took a long time, eventually became like a state issue. And this one farmer in upstate New York who was really passionate about mm. currants basically single-handedly, to my knowledge, got New York State to allow currants. And now when you go to the green market here in New York again in the summer, you can see beautiful little jewel-like currants and you can yeah. get this cassis. But um, it's like a flavor that's pretty unfamiliar to Americans. I think, I don't remember if it's Jolly Rancher or Skittles, but totally. I think the purple Skittle in Europe is actually currant flavored. And here it's grape because currant oh, yeah. is such an unfamiliar flavor to Americans that it wasn't even like in our lexicon until recently. Totally. I love the flavor of black currant. Have you ever had Ribena? I don't think so. What is that? It's, um, it it's sounds really, like medicine. I know it sounds like medicine, but, um, so I, I went to university in Scotland and it's really, really popular there. It's like in all, you can get like black currant candies and Ribena is a brand of, um, like black currant juice and they also make popsicles and like different soft drinks and stuff. And you can get it like anywhere, like every supermarket, any little like small grocery store, gas station, whatever. And it's a really, really common flavor there. And it was it was so new to me when I first went over there and I I kind of fell in love with it. So I'm all about I'm all about black current. I love that. And I love thinking about these flavors that, you know, because of larger context or just the way that things fall out of fashion are so particular to a time like that coming back again. And it makes me think about like what are the pastry chefs of the future gonna look on as being emblematic of this era. I feel like we're past the corona. Do you think there's something in this moment that's going to be dated in the future in that kind of historical way? That is such a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, part of like the beauty of, you know, food and food trends is that they're so cyclical. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, the baked Alaska was like so in fashion and then it was just so like nobody even knew what it was for years. Nobody had ever seen one. And now it's like popping up on menus again. So I... I love this idea of, you know, the life cycle of like a flavor or a pastry or things coming in and out of fashion. Um, So I don't know. And now we're seeing like, uh, like, you know, Jell-O is having a moment and kind of coming back, which is like something that 
I never thought we would see. And now all of a sudden, like people are doing these like fantastic jello desserts and For sure. um, or like really 80s looking um, cakes. Those are sort of like making a comeback. So I don't know. I think there's like a there's like a certain, you know, nostalgia to all of this. But each time things come back around, I think somebody, you know, pastry chefs and and you know, artists and creatives, like we we always sort of breathe new life into it a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true. It kind of reminds me of the way that denim can come back in style and maybe we're having like a baggy low rise moment, but it's not quite in that um, late 90s Y2K era. Right. You know, it's different. Thank- thankfully. 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 Yeah, thankfully to us all. <laughs> Thank you. So on the topic of historical desserts, I'm curious about what your research process was like for when you when you were doing the revival of Gage and Tallner. How much did you want to stick to the original menu and how did you go about navigating that? Yeah. Well, like the menus go all the way back to the the eight you know it opened originally in the 1870s and it closed in 2004 so that's like so there's so many menus and it went through so many iterations it's it's wild and were actually, the menus like preserved somewhere just in this empty we restaurant found them Ooh. In, I know it's like so haunting in like the coolest way. So, um, so the restaurant, you know, for anybody who's not familiar, so it, you know, it was operating for whatever 150 something years or something like that. I'm sure my math is terrible. Close enough. Um, and it was in, you know, it started in one location and then in the 1890s, it moved to the current location just like a few blocks away on Fulton Street. And, um, So it operated there until 2004, but in that time, the space in the building, the interior and exterior, was landmarked. So it's really beautifully preserved space, and you can't touch it um, without permission and and review from the Landmarks Commission, which is really, really amazing. So we worked very, very closely with them in terms of bringing it back to life. Um, But because of that, it really just sat there. And so when... Um, the team was able to get into the space. Uh, our uh, head of um, PR and events, wonderful woman named Alex, she started just like poking around the space and found there's like a crawl, like it's not quite an attic. It's a little bit of like a crawl space. <laughs> and she found boxes and boxes of old menus just like they were just there. Wow, it's like National Treasure Pastry Edition. <laughs> exactly. And it's so we have them. And, you know, I mean, we've put them in like a nice, you know, nice order now and like in like proper boxes so they don't get damaged and everything. But we had all of these menus to work off of and um and really understand like what the the evolution of Gage and Tolner was in terms of the food and all the chefs that came through there. And, uh, you know, food trends and things like that. So I started looking at the menus, which is how I discovered Nestle Road Pie, because Mm -hmm. that appeared on the menu in the 1950s. Um, And then what's really cool is there's stuff that is just so timeless. There's like coconut pie, which is just like. Love it. Decade after decade. And like. I could probably put that on the menu tomorrow and people would be, like, thrilled. Yeah. Like— I would be thrilled. Yeah, absolutely timeless. Maybe I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then you see these things like Nestle Road Pie that are there for, like, a blip, and you're like, what was that? Mm. So there was a lot of, um, yeah, just going through old menus and— and also just like thinking about like the time periods in general and like what was happening in the world, like, you know, the Depression, uh, World War One, World War Two, Prohibition, like the restaurant operated through all of these things. COVID was the second pandemic that this restaurant has been through. Spanish flu being the first. Literal goosebumps when you say I that. Know. <laughs> I mean, our the space is haunted in such a beautiful way. Like you feel I have a story about this. <laughs> have you I, seen a ghost there? I have seen things and we have ex- like there's an energy and I I really I'm not being like even jokey about it. Like there's such an energy there. There ha- like 
there just there has to be like you can't operate in that space and not feel the you know century plus of people who came through there and it's just amazing. I believe this. And the the old mirrors, I think, are really what gives yeah. it that effect to me. Every time I've been there and I'm looking at myself in the mirror because I'm vain, I'm expecting to see like a ghost in the mirror behind me or something <laughs> like that. And when I was dining at Gage and Tallner, most recently I was celebrating something with some of my friends and collaborators. And my friend was telling a story about how she was in Morocco and saw a ghost in a mirror that she believes is one of her uh, ancestors. And we were, oh, you know, very like excited telling the story. Our server was chatting with us about it. And we told him that this was the story we were talking about. He looks at us and he goes, well, I think I asked him, I said, have you ever seen a ghost engage in, in Tolner? He said, you know, we tell a lot of stories about four women that were eating in this very booth. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I think I know who your server was. <laughs> I, I mean, everyone there has been so great, but that was really that was really fun for us. Yeah. Okay, so you, you have this archive. Did you want to yeah. do everything as a reinterpretation, or did you want to bring in new things? Well, I, I, I thought about it in, like, kind of three different ways, where it was like I wanted to honor— you know, the legacy of Gage and Tolner and what it was. But I, you know, I didn't want it to be like some gimmicky throwback, like, you know, wax museum menu. Like I just, you know, recreating old desserts and menus. I think like you have to sort of breathe some new life into it. So there was like that aspect of it. And then thinking about like, okay, well, if, you know, Gage and Tolner had continued to to operate through all these years, like what would have been the natural progression and the evolution. And then I also wanted to see myself in the menu and the things that as a chef I love. So I kind of looked at it in those like three, three different avenues. And um, so there were some things from the older menus that I took and and kind of and reimagined and um, recreated in a certain way. But then it's like, you know, the baked Alaska was never on the menu with Gage and Tolner, but it was such a Victorian era dessert. And I just felt like it, for some reason, it just like, it fits so well with the space that like, I really wanted to see that on the menu. So there was, there was a lot of like, you know, spokes to this wheel, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it also like, I just, I love old stuff. Like my apartment is all like antiques. So it was like the space spoke to me. It felt very comfortable right away. Like what we were doing there and what we, what we wanted to do in terms of reopening that it, it came so naturally. Like, I feel like that process was so just, for lack of a better <laughs> better word, it was like butter. Like it was just so smooth. And and in this weird way, it was really easy, mm-hmm. like creating these dishes. So um, and then, you know, thinking about like if you're coming to Gage and Tolner, like what's the experience that you want to have after you've ordered Parker House rolls and a wedge salad and a, you know, fried chicken or a steak um, and you've had your raw bar like then what do you want? You know, and like how do you top it off? Opulence is like the, yeah. the word that comes to mind for me. When you walk in, even you see the the mirrors and the whole dining space, and you're just like, oh, I'm I'm leaning into this meal, and I need to save room for dessert. Everything signals that to me. Yeah, and I, I, I love that you said that, and it's been so awesome to see how many people like really come in and commit to that experience and order dessert. I think a lot of pastry chefs find that like you know, oh, maybe 20% of guests order dessert. And I mean, I get to look at the, you know, numbers and books every day. And I can see that it's like 80% of reservations or something like that on some nights, it's like even higher are ordering dessert. And it makes me so happy that like, even on, crazy. A, <laughs> even on a Monday, people are just like coming in and getting four courses. Like it's just the greatest thing ever. So what's the experience like in the kitchen when you know that you're going to be making so much dessert? I feel like that must be overwhelming to somebody that hasn't done it at that scale before. I think, you know, in the beginning and like we so for people who have not like followed the the reopening of Gage and Tolner 
story. We were originally supposed to open March 2020. So like we kind of like this is maybe like the ghosts coming up and being like, if you want to reopen, you're going to have to get through something first. Right. Like, let's let's see if you've got what it takes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we kind of like had to do it twice. So we the first opening, we, um, you know, it was like early March and we're gearing up to open and we're doing soft opening and we're doing friends and family and we're having um, cocktail parties for our, you know, we funders and investors and this really amazing community that supported us in, um, you know, opening, opening this restaurant. And, um, and then all of a sudden it was just like, you know, shut down. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know what happened. So that whole experience was just like such a roller coaster. And then like, you know, having to sit and wait and, and see, you know, what happened. We were finally able to open, uh, April 2021. And um, I really, I credit the the partners, um, Sohi Kim, Ben Schneider, Sinjin Frizzell, with really like keeping the, kind of keeping the dream alive throughout the pandemic. Like we obviously like were closed. Like everybody didn't have a job. You know, we had, we had no idea what was going on. And um we would all get on Zoom every week and have like Zoom happy hour and stuff like that. And like, you know, it was so it was so uncertain. But I really credit them with like, you know, keeping our our spirits um, alive during that time. So anyway, we kind of came back into it and it was like, you know, the world looked so different mm -hmm. and we had to open at a very um, small capacity. I think when we opened, it was at like indoor dining was at like 25%. It was like yeah. whatever it was that that first like little chunk. So in a way that was um really really great for like sort of slowly building momentum and understanding like okay, how much dessert are people ordering? What does service look like? Like we would do, you know, 30 covers a night, which is nothing in that space. And then the next week when they like, you know, up the number a little bit to like 35%, we would do a little bit more and a little bit more. And so it was sort of like a gradual build. Mm -hmm. um, I think coming into it and like ripping off the Band-Aid at like, you know, 290 covers, 300 covers a night we would have gotten there anyway, but it would have been a much bumpier ride. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a silver lining to that, that reduced indoor dining. Um, and I think now it feels to me like we're in such a nice groove and we have such an incredible team now that it's, I'll never say it's easy because like, you know, nothing's easy, but we've really built up the team and the the infrastructure and the, you know, prep schedule and like everything, you know, is everybody has their knows knows what needs to happen. And in, in this way, it really just kind of is like chugging along really beautifully. And I'm really um, like so, so uh in awe of of everybody every day. I'm just like, we we have the best team. It's amazing. That's really nice. And I do think when you're dining there, it seems like a very like well-oiled machine of a restaurant. But I imagine that your Baldor order must be crazy just in terms of the amount of eggs and milk and butter that you're ordering. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. And I think like, you know, I've worked in also very, very small restaurants mm -hmm. where you you wear a lot of hats and you do everything because that's just how it has to be. Like you're the receiver and, you know, you're the prep cook and you're the expediter and you do all the ordering and all of that. And so, you know, now we have like a whole like system and like receiver who like coordinates that and, you know, there's checklists and it's sure there's like thousands of pounds of food coming through the door every day yeah there's a real like there's a real like method to the madness mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sure yeah 
So we're talking about iconic New York City restaurants and all of these things. And I know that you um, are born and raised here in New York. So I'm curious if you could give me like maybe three like iconic New York City desserts that really stick out to you th- that are not at G&T, but oh, elsewhere in the city. Such a good question. And I, I love that like if you asked 100 New Yorkers, you would get 100 different answers and they yeah. would all be so good because yeah. like this is just like New York is... You can get everything and everybody has their own story. So for me, if I'm thinking about like iconic New York desserts, um, one of the first that comes to mind is like New York cheesecake, Mm -hmm. which I adore. And we were talking about cheesecake, I think, before we started recording um, and how much we love it. So, um, yeah, like just like a really classic. Do you have a spot? Cheesecake. Um, not really. I, I love I love the like seeing everybody's iterations. Um, I love making my own. Um, and obviously at Gage and Tolner, I have like a goat cheese cheesecake on the menu, which was like me putting, you know, a little bit of like my twist on it. It's not a classic New York cheesecake at all, which I think is really cool. Like mm-hmm. we're, you know, like juniors is right down the street. And like, you know, I like, I don't want to step on their toes. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, really, really great cheesecake. Um, I think that uh, I think about, like, Jewish cookies a lot and rugula. That, to me, is a very, very iconic um, New York dessert. Um, Are you team cinnamon or team chocolate? Chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate. I, I asked cinnamon, but I've never totally. heard anyone say cinnamon. Nobody says cinnamon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one craves cinnamon. Nobody does. No. I mean, you know, I'm not going to like say no to a cinnamon regular, but I'm always going to pick the chocolate one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say like a really amazing chocolate babka. Mm. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my experience and my background is Ashkenazi Jewish. And so those things are very like nostalgic to me and comforting and they feel very New York. Um, And yeah, that's just kind of my, you know, experience. But I just I love that we live in a city where we have access to like so much, so much good stuff. Those are all great. I think I would I would add that mine is um a Mr. Softy swirl. Ooh, that's a good one. Recently I found out, I think last summer I found out that they have chopped peanuts that you can add to oh, the ice cream. Fantastic. So that is my like ultimate. I, I actually yeah. think I have a problem because I can't say no if I'm walking and no, I see one. It's not a problem. Even if I'm going, no, I'm going to dinner and I'm still <laughs> stopping and eating a full ice cream because the, it's, I have a scarcity mentality that right. it's not going to be around forever. And then if I say no to it now, I'm going to be you know, sitting, talking to you in March of next year and thinking right. about that one time that I didn't get it. And and yeah, totally. Where will I, can, I be? I can relate to that. The other thing that's very nostalgic for me, because you said Mr. Softy, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. like this is my, maybe my Mr. Softy is um, they have them at like every bodega, um, coconut, froze fruit, popsicles. Yes. But specifically the coconut one. It has like chunks of coconut it's in it. It's so good. And the second it is like, about like 70 degrees or above in New York, like I have to have one like once a week. Like it's just, I don't know. There's something about it and it feels very, I mean, you can get them anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, but it there's, I don't know, that experience of like having one and like walking to the park feels very New York to me in mm-hmm. some way. I love this. And, you know, I think all food is transportive, but desserts, um, maybe because we all crave sugar or because like sometimes you don't eat them every day, it's more of an occasion. Like they are so transportive yeah. in that way. And I think that's why it's so cool that you're nodding to history on this menu because um, it's nice to think about the fact that somebody could be sitting at the bar at Gage and Tolner 150 years ago and eating a version of a cheesecake or something like that. Right. Yeah. It kind of, it gives me goosebumps in the best way. And I love that we mark celebrations with dessert. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to use the word treat, but it's like, oh, like this wonderful thing happened today. Let's celebrate with like an ice cream cone after work. Yeah. You know? Or the ice cream cone after work is the celebration itself. Yes. Yes. Definitely. So good. Um, yeah. I, I feel like we're talking a lot about pastry and sweets, but I know that you do savory baking as well. Like yes. Both at the restaurant and in general. And I, I know you did a sourdough book, which is actually the sweet side of sourdough. So mm-hmm. back on that side. But I'm curious, like, if you're baking bread at all these oh, days. Oh, yeah. You have, I mean, do you have time? 
Well, not so much at home, but I I do at home, but it's not like the daily routine anymore because I just I don't have time. But was that a, a pandemic era thing for you? I do all the breads at Gage and Tolner. Um, and when the first, you know, when COVID hit, we had our sourdough starter and I was like, well, I can't, like, I'm not going to leave her here to die. Does she have a name? Edna, after Edna Lewis, oh. who was the chef at, at Gage and Tolner. But you um, can't let the Edna Lewis no, starter die. No, I mean, just, like, <laughs> she was the chef at Gage and Tolner, um, so iconic. Uh, towards the end of her career, she was like in her 70s and she was like, she had her own little, like, space where like her sacred space where she would make her pies and like she was a real icon um but anyway so we had our sourdough starter and I was like well we're not gonna let her die so I I take her home and I'm feeding her every day and so I'm baking every day and then I like totally just it's like bread overload you Mm -hmm. can't you're like and it was COVID. Like, it's not like I'm, like, going to dinner parties bringing people bread. Mm-hmm. So then I started to think about what else I could put my sourdough starter in. And that's sort of how the book happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but at work, we do um, a beautiful panel event every day with some farmer ground flowers. And, like, that to me is everybody comes and gets the Parker House rolls, which are so delicious and so buttery. But I actually, if I had to choose like one of the breads to to eat forever, it would be the Penelovan. Hot take, honestly. I know, I know. And I always tell people that. And I think it's like, yes, you have to get the Parker House rolls when you come to Gage and Tolner. The first time you have to. It's like it's not a rule, but it's not not a rule. Why? Um, just just because they're so iconic to the restaurant? I think they're iconic to the restaurant. They're an amazing way to start the meal. They come with like like there's literally like a pool of butter. Like yeah. just they're like piping hot tear them apart. They're like steaming. There's flaky salt on them. It's just like... They kind of look like little butts. Yeah. They kind of look like cute little butts. We love it. Um, So you really need to have that experience. But the second time you come, get the Penelovan because it's it's crusty, it's tangy, and it... um, I think it is such like a perfect thing to have alongside like salad, soup, whatever else you're eating. Um, And then it's like, you know, if you're not going to, you get a quarter of loaf, you know, per order. Like if you don't finish it, take it home, toast it the next day. It's like the perfect breakfast. So I love that bread. And um, we're making that every day along with uh, Pullman loaves, all the Parker house. I do like a seeded rye for certain things. I do a pumpernickel for um, one of the savory dishes. Uh, what else? And did you keep Kacha. any of Edna for your home use when you yeah. brought her back to the restaurant? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I have a little bit at home, which, um, and at this point, like I don't, at home, I don't feed her every day. She's like kind of, hi- she hibernates. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about sourdough starter that I think a lot of people don't realize is that like you can put them into like a hibernation or like a dormant in the fridge state in the fridge and they bounce back pretty quickly yeah yeah i I was on the sourdough game for a while before the pandemic started maybe two months before i got into sourdough baking which was very convenient timing for so for the world um but then I, i just like i ran out at a certain point of like emotional energy i think to do it yeah yeah it is it is um I mean, you have to you have to feed it like you have to you have to nurture it. And so it's like it can you can get burnout. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I was having a hard time taking care of myself in that moment. And so taking care of my bread was getting stressful. And then luckily now, you know, I live in a city where I can get great sourdough. You can get great everywhere. Bread everywhere. Do you have a favorite? Um, I mean, She Wolf to me is my go to. I used to live in in Fort Greene, Clinton Hill. and I still go to the farmer's market. That's where I live. Yeah. I, I feel like I used to see you. Oh my see gosh. your like hair kind of bobbing around, <laughs> <laughs> which is also something I have to I have to ask you um, if if people are listening, just go to the the image at the top of this podcast and you'll see a nice drawing of of Caroline with her iconic hairdo. And I'm just curious, like when you started wearing your hair like this? Oh God, I feel like I've been wearing it like this for oh my God, so long. I mean, probably since high school at least. And the, do you remember like? how you felt the first time you wore your hair this way? 
Um, well, so the thing is, my hair has always been really big. Like, I've just always had a ton of hair. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, this was actually like to like be low maintenance and like get it out of the way to just pile it on top of my head with like one giant hair clip. Um, so I saw this as like a kind of like just like really low maintenance way to wear my hair but uh-huh. because there's so much of it it's it has like a very dramatic look and people assume that it's like this process and it's really not yeah it's well I mean like, I have a lot of hair myself you do so yes I don't really think it takes you a long time necessarily but it is a very intentional you know you could be doing all kinds of different yes. things and I love this kind of like um lady of the manor kind of oh, vibe that I'm getting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a certain like um there's a certain showiness to it, a little bit of drama. I mean, we talked about like, you know, I went to um LaGuardia High School for uh performing arts just kind of a couple blocks away from here. Um and I was a drama major. So like and I'm a Leo, so all this kind of makes sense. <laughs> um but yeah, and now it's just sort of become my look, my signature look. And, you know, at work, I have it like this, and then I, I wrap a headscarf around it for the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, otherwise, it's just like my daily go-to. It takes like 30 seconds, and I just yeah. pile it up there. I find it very comforting. I, I don't know why, maybe just because I'm interested in aesthetics, but I think that like creative people that are making a body of work, whether it's music or fashion or food, like when they have their own personal aesthetic, even if it's very different than the work that they're making, I think it just shows that people have a perspective that they're coming from, that they're interested in nurturing in their own life. And I really like that. I feel like I know that I'm going into something that has been considered. Yeah. Yeah. I... I did want the baked Alaska to kind of look like my hair. It kind of does. Thank you. Well, because I was like, when I was figuring out like how I wanted to like apply the meringue, I was like, it's just so not me to pipe it on. Like that's so not what I want this to look like and be. And then I was like, I was like swooshing it and I was like going for this sort of like upward swoosh. And I was like, oh, it's like an updo. It's like my hair. (laughs) Some people might think that's totally bizarre. No, it's like how um, people look like their dogs. You look like your desserts. Yeah, totally. That's so cute. I love that. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking a lot about these desserts that that you make. um, And I'm curious, like on your birthday, what do you want? Are you making your own dessert? Or like what's your ideal birthday situation? Well, growing up, I always had to make my own birthday cake. And I would get so excited about it. And I would like start talking about it like in like my birthday in July, like January, the discussion began. (laughs) What I was going to do, making my own birthday cake was always like one of my favorite things to do. So um, for years, I really did my own thing. Um, So I have a niece and nephew and, you know, my nephew is still quite a little, a little baby, but my niece is, um, you know, she's a kid now. So, and she's very into, she's very into dessert and baking and very into like what I'm doing. You know, she really wants to like hang out in the kitchen with me. And Aww. so um, for my birthday this year, she was like, I'm going to tell you what cake to make. So <laughs> I let her. New York City kid. I, she's, she's not. She oh. lives in Philly. Okay. But um, Philly kid. she's a Philly kid. And she was like, I think you should do like a vanilla cake with strawberries. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. And she came to my birthday party and she approved. So um, so I, I let her call some shots now. <laughs> um, but I still really love to make something for my birthday and really get people together. Like it's really just, it feels so nice. Yeah. And you have a summer and, birthday, yeah. which is like the full pantry of fruit is available to you. Yeah. And like you can be outside and it's just like, you know, making a bunch of dessert for a bunch of people I love is like heaven. Yeah. Aw. <laughs> so we ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or a food culture book without the burden of time. So no deadline or money. You have unlimited money to, to travel or do research or buy all of the fruit at the green market. Um, what would that book be? Oh, I love this question so much. 
Can I have two answers? <laughs> sure. Okay. So there's two. One is something we've been talking about, which is like the historical dessert. And I think I would go like really into the Victorian era desserts mm. and what all of that was and, you know, how they were presented and just like deep dive. And there would be photography and recreating everything. And it would be like both historical and it would be a cookbook. So it would be this like almost like encyclopedic Victorian era dessert thing. So fun. Lots of gelatin. Um, and just like, like it blows my mind. Like the desserts were so like I look at some of them and I'm like, oh my God, the labor involved. And this was before, you know, KitchenAid mixers and, you know, refrigeration and freezers as we know it and all this stuff where it's like, oh, today this is labor intensive. What was it like back then? Mm. You know? Yeah. We talked about this when I interviewed you for a piece I wrote for a yeah. tea magazine about yeah. meringue and um, how labor intensive it must have been to make baked Alaska in the era before the balloon whisk when oh people had, I think people using like bunches of straw to whisk or branches. Oh my God. Like the labor was totally beyond. The arm muscles oh, were, were prodigious. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I think about that a lot and I think that would just be so cool to like spend like five years just like researching and writing that kind of thing. And then the other book, which is totally just like opposite end of the spectrum would be um, a vegetable grilling book because Whoa. I just love <laughs> grilling vegetables so much. Was not expecting you to I say know. that. Nobody. Yeah. Um, I just it's like in the summer, I love I love grilling and I love the idea that like, you know, people think about, you know, just like throwing steaks and hot dogs and burgers on the grill. But I'm like, oh, you can grill all your you can grill all your fruits and vegetables. And it's just there's something like I just in the summer, I kind of just like want to spend like all day standing at the grill. Yeah. Like, What's your favorite vegetable to grill? Um, I love grilling um, hearty greens mm. like um, escarole and Swiss chard and kale. I think those are the grilled green is a really underrated experience. That's your title right there, the grilled green. Oh, yes. Let's write it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much for coming. This was so much fun. Thank you. This was a blast. Ellie Skirzat, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. I've seen this room so many times in photos. It's so, so crazy. So, listener, Ellie draws those amazing, amazing photos and images and, and illustrations that go along with each of these episodes. But you that's, like, low-key, like, an eighth of what you do, drawing. Because we'll get into your film career. You work at Comedy Central. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about yourself. Where did you grow up? So I'm from Harleysville, Pennsylvania, which is a small town outside of Philly, kind of in between Philly and like the Lehigh Valley, Allentown yeah. area. And then it's also kind of near like Lancaster, Amish yeah. world. So um, definitely had a lot of like Scrapple yeah. growing up and really? shoe fly pie, that kind of stuff. Are you a yeah. fan of Scrapple? Yes. I'm a fan. I, I Pretty much all breakfast meats. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I mean, it's definitely like the, I, it's not something I would have every day. It kind of is like <laughs> crunchy on the outside and like mushy on the inside. Yeah. It's like a mushy sausage, yeah. but it does taste really good. Yeah. What, so what what was food like growing up in your house? Like what were you making? Were you into cooking yourself? Like what? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I think I... I like pretty early on in elementary school, I started watching Emerald Live every night yes. in my room and like Sarah Moulton, like yeah. such as some of those old shows and was like, oh man, food can be a whole like career or world. Uh, and so, yeah, I always loved cooking and my mom is Italian. So I grew up having oh, cool. a lot of homemade Italian-American stuff, meatballs and sauce like once a week, nice. lasagna, um, a lot of like chicken cacciatore, yeah, yeah that kind of thing. The real Italian American classics, yes, the canon, yes, yeah, 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 and not stuff that they 
serve in Italy per se, yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Now tell me, when did art enter the world? Were you were you drawing from an early age? Like how, yeah. yeah, I was always like the kid with a coloring book or so cool. or on a computer. Like I feel like I also figured out pretty early on that I loved computers and could figure them out yeah. and just like make something with them. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't really till high school that I had an art teacher, shout out Mrs. Wright, yeah, who uh, kind of convinced me that it could be a job. I remember she like handed us a sheet of paper that was like just a list of all the jobs you could have if you were an artist. Oh my gosh. And it kind of opened up like, oh, I don't need to like sculpt marble sculptures. Like yeah. I can like- Studio artists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it felt like, oh, okay, maybe this is something I can do. And then I studied painting in college and did a lot of portraits. And uh, my teachers really encouraged that. I think, like, once you, like, show that you can do portraits and figures, a lot of people are like, oh, you're going to be a beautiful, like, figure. Like, yeah. just do big oil paintings. Like, that was heavily encouraged. And it got kind of stressful. <laughs> so yeah. then I, I honestly kind of pivoted to food because I was like— there's way less pressure. I was doing like so many commissions and it's like, I got to make this person's baby look cute. Is like, that what I you gotta... were doing? So let me ask you, was, is there like a market for oil, like large oil paintings, figure yeah. drawing? <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of, yeah. And even like landscapes for someone's living room of like the Brooklyn Bridge. Like it was a lot of commissions. Yeah. Which is fun and cool because then yeah. you know that someone has a meaningful piece of art in their yeah. home. But it was also pressure to, like, make sure it's the thing that they want. Yeah. But when you're drawing food, it's much easier to to make the thing recognizable. Like, it doesn't have to have, like, a certain—like, you can immediately see it and, like, connect and know what it is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be perfect, which I— Well, it's interpreted because, like, fruit is, like, a different— fruit every time it comes out of the yes, vine. Yes, exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a lot more, like, wiggle room with how you render it, which was uh, really freeing. Did you ever paint somebody and have them, like, freak out <laughs> that I'm like, they're like, that's not me! That's not me! I've definitely had, I think one time I did a portrait of a family. It was, like, four people, and one of them was, like, a 98-year-old woman, and they were like, can you make her look a little less old like I think I like just didn't do a great job of like making this 98 year old a, oh a flattering uh, I've legit like written you that note for one of our <laughs> guests we've had over 200 so like I'm not going to say who it is but I've said Can no you? I appreciate it I appreciate it uh, <laughs> just kidding no no I'm not an ageist but I think I've had like maybe can we modify this angle of the reference and yeah. is maybe yeah, yeah, not yeah. the best angle yeah no you have a great um <laughs> I for that kind of thing. So I appreciate those notes. I mean, it's it's to credit to you because I think our guests on the show and listeners, you're seeing these uh, illustrations every time you open up your app and you're listening. Uh, they're amazing. You're, you you nail it. Like, you, and I love the. Let's talk about color because you're you often send multiple colors, and I and I make a choice. But how do you like? How do you think about color and guests? It's it's interesting. I always think I know which one you're gonna pick, and a lot of times you surprise me. Oh. So I so I'm like, okay, I gotta keep sending him multiple options because I never know what Matt's gonna pick. <laughs> but I, I think I so first I draw like the drawing that goes on top of the other layers mm. that kind of serves as a guide, and there definitely is like a split second decision of like just everything I know about the person, maybe their personality. Like, yeah. I, I I, don't even know. It happens so fast. But I, there is a choice there with whatever that color is. Yeah. And then I think the rest of the colors are kind of um, uh, decided uh, almost based off of that color. So, I, so to make yeah. sure that they all work in relation to each other. And that's the choice that you make, which are amazing. How do you decide on the three colors, the four colors that... <laughs> I mean, I, I try to, I try to like pick colors that have like depth. So I'll pick kind of like one darker color that will like recede a little bit in the image. I usually try to pick like one bright color for either like their face or the background. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's like, honestly, the decisions happen so fast. And then <laughs> a lot of times I'll kind of make almost arbitrary decisions yeah. and then look at it once it's done and I be like, okay, how do I have to like change this to yeah. make it feel right? I love that. So I'll do some like adjusting after I do it. But the fun part is really, um, 
coming up with all the different options. Like I'll have like the image, like whatever the first version of it is, and then I'll make like mm-hmm. three different versions of it that feel like maybe they could work. And that's I'm what so, I send over to you. So fascinating. Who, so let's talk about some of your favorites because I think you probably have... I have no idea if you've ever listened to an episode and I don't even know. But, and, and, you know, but like, do you have any favorite character, people, you characters, people who sat in the seat you're sitting in yeah. that, you've, that you've drawn? I, the ones who don't work in food necessarily yeah. are always really fun to see their names pop on the schedule yeah. and be like, oh, Zasha Mamet. What? Yeah. That's cool. Or like yeah. Hames was a really fun yeah. one as a big Das Racist fan. Yeah. Barty Strange was really cool. Uh, and also learning like, what these people's connections to food are, like learning that Jimmy Butler is really into coffee yeah. was cool. Uh, well, shout out for like listening to some of the episodes. <laughs> I least, have listened yeah. to some, especially yeah. after learning I was going to be yeah. on here. I was like, I need to, I need to you boned know up what's going to happen. Yeah. Respect, respect. <laughs> but you, have, you also have a personal connection to maybe one or two of the uh, the guests that you've drawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Io, Debri, and I were in an improv class nice. together. Uh which was pretty cool. And I feel like I've even drawn some and then like some writers and then realized like, oh, we have mutual friends you just by a party. Or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. The IO episode was one of my favorites. And she, you know, she was on the bear and, and also just such a, f- a funny, such a such a com- her timing and her brain yeah. is is on a different level. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Speaking of that, you work at Comedy Central. Yes. What do you do there? I love Comedy Central. I mean, who, who doesn't love Comedy Central? No matter how old you are, I mean, this whole this whole Daily Show trial thing is amazing too. It's love really that. cool. It's cool to see, just like all all of the guest hosts have been pretty great. It's kind of cool to see. I I don't know who they're gonna yeah. pick or if they're even gonna, gonna land on I someone. Felt, I felt, <laughs> yeah, I have no insight into that. Um, yeah, uh, Minhaj is probably my favorite. Yeah, he's yeah he's absolutely great. killing it. Sarah Silverman was also great. Oh, yeah, I would love great. to see her. But I think like she's maybe beyond like I like she just had her own show. Like yeah. I don't know that she would do that same thing every day. I mean, um, bring back John. I mean, he has his own thing too. I, know. I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know who they'll do. A woman would be cool. I agree. And I think that's definitely the right decision. So hopefully it is um a change in you know, that. But what do you do there? What's your your role? (laughs) So I, I mean, it's changed a lot over the years. I've been there for seven and a half years now. Yeah. That's like two daily daily show hosts or one? Yeah. When I got there, it was like the month that Trevor Noah started. Yeah. Uh, And also Colbert and Jon Stewart had like just ended. So it was kind of like a sad Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, lament, lamenting period when I first got there. Um, So when I started, it was a lot of like making gifts for their Twitter and Mm -hmm. supporting their shows. Like I remember KFC announced they were like coming up with a new Colonel Sanders. So I photoshopped (laughs) Abby and Alana as Colonel (laughs) Sanders, like that kind of just like funny uh, They're the, the best. Dumb images on Twitter. Yeah. 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 And it was also a lot of like roaming backstage at comedy shows and being like, Kumail Nanjiani, can I take a Snapchat of you for Comedy Central? Like that wow. kind of thing, which You're was really cool. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I got to meet a lot of cool people that way. And then my team hired some video producers and we kind of pivoted to video, as mm-hmm. they say. And now <laughs> right. I'm getting to uh, write and direct digital sketches which is really cool that's amazing so you're writing for, and how do you are those on like the website the company yeah website? they're on are there youtube youtube yeah. instagram tiktok just yeah across all the all the socials we'll get to your your filmmaking but i want to hear about some of the other you've you've worked on many taste stories so it's not just the podcast yeah. <laughs> do you have any favorite stories that you've worked on so many and I, we love working with you so yeah much. i I do love when I get an opportunity to draw some really, like, succulent food. There was that paneer piece by Dixit that was, like, just, like, sizzling paneer. That was really fun. And then another piece about, I think it was called Crazy Fruit Salad or Extreme Fruit Salad. About that, like, fruit salad where they put sparklers in it and it's, like, served in a watermelon. And I got to make it really, like, juicy. Yeah. (laughs) I just love food that looks really, like, sexy, basically. But it also looks like it's, like, you know, metal. Yeah. Metal show show poster. Yeah, kind of uncanny. Yeah. Uncanny, yeah. Uh, but I also really love to do the photo um, photo collages. Like when yeah. you give me just a folder of like 30 reference images yeah. and I kind of get to go buck wild and do mm-hmm. whatever I want. That's always really fun. I appreciate the uh, variety. We 
Love it. Appreciate you. And it's just fun to collaborate. And I think taste gets a lot of high regard for our art direction and you're a big part of it. So thank you. Yeah, it's always fun. um, Let me ask you about um, like foods that you feel like you have not drawn that you want to draw. Is there something that maybe you've you've wanted to tackle that maybe we can work on like maybe we'll start with the art first and then we'll get to the story right right wow foods i would want to draw you probably drawn many so this is tough i the first thing that's coming to mind is like a really good italian pork sandwich yeah i love a sandwich that has like just a lot of layers that don't necessarily sound like they would go out. Like, the, the classic, like, Philly Italian pork sandwich is, yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. pork, broccoli, rob, provolone. Totally. Uh, <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe I'm just hungry right now. No. But that would be really fun to draw. Honestly, yeah, any—I really love to draw sandwiches. I love you bring up uh, pork. I think Philly is a pork town, not a not a whatever cheese. Cheese, I agree. Stay. I, mean, I don't even, even say the word because it's not even yeah. worth even saying the word cheese stick. Um Good call on that. We should work on a pork sandwich story and get this going. That'd be great. Yeah. And then animation. I feel like that's one part that I love working with you on, like just animation. Yeah, I love when I get the opportunity to do that. I There was another piece about a curry tree. It was someone like oh, smuggling yeah. a curry tree across yeah, Hugh the Merwin country. Yeah, Hugh yeah, Merwin yeah. great piece on that. A yeah. great piece. And I got to do a lot of little illustrations for that. A little like more... Uh, just like illustrations of that world. Like Spiders. I think there was one where it was like him in a desert mm-hmm. uh, with the curry tree in the back of his car. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so that was really fun. <laughs> Love that. I, well, we'll definitely, we'll work on more things. So tell me about your filmmaking. What are you working on? You know you have got the Comedy Central, but you've got your own personal work too. Yeah. Yeah, I um, collaborate with Natasha Vainblatt, who's a New York Base comedian and mm-hmm. good friend of mine. And right now we're working on a short called Astro Love, which is a musical comedy about ah. a, uh, it's in post right now. So yeah. we're in the editing stages. It's about uh, an astrologer woman who's like in her 60s who thinks she has her whole life figured out. And then she finds her real birth certificate and discovers that she's a Pisces and not a Leo. And it kind of up- <laughs> upends her whole life. <laughs> Uh, a great conceit. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. She, this is her world. She's an astrologer. Yeah, she's an astrologer. Wow. Wow. So wow. she thinks like she has it all. She knows everything about herself. And then she learns that she her whole life isn't what she thought it was. Wow. <laughs> and so and this is going to be festivals and all that. Kind yeah. Of yeah. We'll definitely we'll definitely send it out. And yeah. there's some uh, animation throughout. Yeah. And yeah. I love that. Um is there like an actor you'd like to work with? Is there somebody in the in the comedy world or even in in dramatic wow. world? I would love to. Uh, I mean, there's so many people. Yeah. I, I, I'd love to work with Zach Cherry. I don't know if you know who he is. He was in Severance, mm-hmm. that great Apple show. Yeah. He's like in everything Such he's in. Show. I'm oh. like, love yeah. that guy. Uh, it's a real scene, scene stealer in that show. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Every scene, every scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I would love to work with the high maintenance dude, yeah, ben, ben Sinclair. Ben Sinclair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Probably. He just seems like a fun guy to work with and yeah. kind of down for any weird. So, Ben, yeah, Ben writes on Dave. He's been like directing oh. and writing a lot of those episodes. A lot of the last season, the Rick Rubin episode felt extremely Ben Sinclair. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I've kind of been wondering. High maintenance was so cool. Yeah. And I feel like I haven't really kept up with what those people have been up to since then so that's cool to hear what a real shame that show went away i know i know it was weird it should have it should have been going on forever yeah somebody agreed. should have unlimited stories unlimited stories of new york and yeah just nails new york in, in such a special way um speaking of new york let's let's talk restaurants i, I always want to ask guests who live here give me a couple spots that yeah. you really that you just love so I live in Bushwick, so I've been trekking up to Ridgewood a lot. Yeah. Have you been to Rolos? Yeah, I haven't been to Rolos, but it gets high regards. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Really good. And they're constantly changing out their menu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Really good, just wood-fired mm-hmm. stuff. Like everything I order, I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of menu. Uh, and another place in Ridgewood I've been going to, a newish place called Mama Yoshi Mini Mart. Oh, cool. It's like a little— New to me. I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have— uh, a chicken katsu sandwich where it's like the chicken is like double the size of the bun, has that kind to be of that thing. Way. Yeah, it has to be for gram at least. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been going up there. Uh, Bernie's in Williamsburg yeah. is like an all-time favorite. Uh, uh, and closer to me, there's a cafe called Foster Sundry yeah. that I spend so much money there. <laughs> it's like any any place that has coffee and sandwiches yeah. and is close to my house. I, it's like it's, a go-to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Great calls. Um, we also guest on today's podcast. If you can read a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, of course you will draw this. It could be all illustrations. It could be written by you. <laughs> Ellie, what would that book be? I didn't even think about the the illustration aspect. Yeah, but yeah, there definitely would be. I think it would be Italian-American food, but emphasis on the American. Like Ooh, Italian food, yeah. but a little like fucked up like hawaiian yeah. pizza or pizza like dunked in ranch dressing like yeah. mozzarella sticks You're talking my language yeah like things that are like italian but not yeah. really um some kind of dish that has like alfredo sauce and a red sauce just like i just like having fun with italian food basically i, love that. <laughs> I think that's what it would be i, I think and, and also just like an illustrated guide yeah to yeah, fucked yeah, up yeah. italian american food yeah yo Let's do it. All right. Let's get it I'm done. I'm in the Penguin Random House You're building. in the building. <laughs> Let's go upstairs and pitch some of the bosses. But also, maybe we work on a story for taste on that. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I've often wondered, like, should I pitch? Like, I'll sometimes have an idea and be like, yeah. can I pitch? 100%. Okay, cool. Are you kidding me? We're going off mic and going. We're going to get you an assignment right away. <laughs> Ellie Skrzet, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.